Section 9 of His Family. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Carson. His Family by Ernest Poole. Chapter 27. Roger found her like that one evening. He heard what he thought was a sob from the room, for she had forgotten to close the door. He came into the doorway, but drew back, and closed the door with barely a sound. Frowning and irresolute, he stood for a moment in the hall, then turned and went into his room. Soon he heard Deborah enter the house and come slowly up the stairs. She too had had a hard day, he recalled, a day all filled with turbulence, with problems and with vexing toil, in her enormous family and he felt he could not blame her for not being of more help at home. Still, he had been disappointed of late in her manner toward her sister. He had hoped she would draw closer to Edith, now that again they were living together in their old home where they had been born. But no, it had worked just the opposite way. They were getting upon each other's nerves. Why couldn't she make overtures, small kindly proffers of help, and advice and sympathy, the womanly things. From his room he heard her knock softly at the same door he had closed, and he heard her low, clear voice. Are you there, Edith, dear? He listened a moment intently, but he could not hear the reply. Then Deborah said, Oh, you poor thing, I'm awfully sorry. Edith, don't bother to come downstairs. Let me bring you up your supper. A pause. I wish you would. I'd love to. He heard Deborah come by his door and go up the second flight of stairs to the room she had taken on the third floor. I was wrong, he reflected. She has been trying. But it doesn't do any good. Women simply haven't it in them to see each other's point of view. Deborah doesn't admire Edith. She can't. She only pities her and puts her down as out of date. And Edith feels that and it gets her riled, and she sets herself like an angry old hen against all Deborah's new ideas. Why the devil can't they live and let live? And he hesitated savagely between a pearl gray and a black cravat. Then he heard another step on the stairs. It was much slower than Deborah's, and cautious and dogged, one foot lifted carefully after the other. It was John who had finished his kitchen supper and was silently making his way up through the house to his room at the top, there to keep out of sight for the evening. And it came into Roger's mind that John had been acting in just this fashion ever since Edith had been in the house. "'We'll have trouble there, too,' he told himself, as he jerked the black satin cravat into place, a tie he thoroughly disliked. Yes, black, by George, he felt like it tonight. These women, these evenings, this worry, this war, this world gone raving, driveling mad. And frowning with annoyance, Roger went down to his dinner. As he waited, he grew impatient. He had eaten no lunch, he was hungry. And he was very tired, too, for he had had his own hard day. Pshaw! He got up angrily. Somebody must be genial here. He went into the dining room and poured himself a good stiff drink. 
Roger had never been much of a drinker. Ever since his marriage, cigars had been his only vice, but of late he had been having curious little sinking spells. They worried him, and he told himself he could not afford to get either too tired or too faint. Nevertheless, he reflected, it was setting a bad example for George. But glancing into his study, he saw that the lad was completely absorbed. With knees drawn up, his long, lank form, all hunched and huddled on the lounge, hair rumpled, George was reading a book which had a cover of tough grey cloth. At the sight of it his grandfather smiled, for he had seen it once before. Where George had obtained it, the Lord only knew. Its title was Bulls and Breeding, a thoroughly practical little book, but nothing for George's mother to see. As his grandfather entered behind him, the boy looked up with a guilty start and resumed with a short breath of relief. Young Elizabeth, too, had a furtive air, for instead of preparing her history lesson, she was deep in the evening paper reading about the war abroad. Stout and florid, rather plain, but with a frank, attractive face and honest, clear, appealing eyes, this curious creature of thirteen was sitting firmly in her chair, with her feet planted wide apart, eagerly scanning an account of the work of American surgeons in France. And again Roger smiled to himself. He was feeling so much better now. So Betsy was still thinking of becoming a surgeon. He wondered what she would take up next. In the past two years, in swift succession, she had made up her mind to be a novelist, an actress, and a woman's college president and Roger liked this tremendously. He loved to watch these two in the house. Here again his family was widening out before him, with new figures arising to draw his attention this way and that. But these were bright distractions. He took a deep, amused delight in watching these two youngsters caught between two fires, on the one side their mother, and upon the other their aunt both obviously drawn toward Deborah, a figure who stood in their regard for all that thrilling outside world, that heaving, sparkling ocean on which they too would soon embark, both sternly repressing their eagerness as an insult to their mother, whom they loved and pitied so, regarding her as a brave and dear but rapidly aging creature, well on in her thirties, whom they must cherish and preserve. They both had such solemn thoughts as they looked at Edith in her chair. But as Roger watched them, with their love and their solemnity, their guilt and their perplexity, with quiet enjoyment he would wait to see the change he knew would come. And it always did. The sudden picking up of a book, the vanishing of an anxious frown, and in an instant their young minds had turned happily back into themselves into their own engrossing lives, their plans, their intimate dreams and ambitions, all so curiously bound up with memories of small happenings which had struck them as funny that day, and at which they would suddenly chuckle aloud. And this was only one stage in their growth. What would be the next, he asked, and all the others after that? What kind of world would they live in? Please heaven, there would be no wars. 
Many old things, no doubt, would be changed by the work of Deborah and her kind, but not too many. Roger hoped. And these young people, meanwhile, would be bringing up children in their turn. So the family would go on and multiply and scatter wide, never to unite again. And he thought he could catch glimpses, very small and far away, but bright as patches of sunlight upon distant mountain tops, into the widening vista of those many lives ahead. A wistful look crept over his face. In their lives, too, we shall be there, the dim, strong figures of the past. Deborah came into the room, and at once the whole atmosphere changed. Her knee sprang up delightedly. "'Why, Auntie, how lovely you look!' she exclaimed. And Roger eyed Deborah in surprise. Though she did not believe in mourning, she had been wearing dark gowns of late to avoid hurting Edith's feelings. But to-night she had donned bright colors instead. Her dress was as near décolleté as anything that Deborah wore, and there was a band of dull blue velvet bound around her hair. "'Thanks, dearie,' she said, smiling. "'Shall we go in to dinner now?' she added to her father. Edith said not to wait for her, and I'll have to be off rather early this evening. "'What is it tonight?' he inquired. "'A big meeting at Cooper Union.' And at dinner she went on to say that in her five schools the neighborhood clubs had combined to hold this meeting, and she herself was to preside. At once her young niece was all animation. "'Oh, I wish I could go and hear you,' she sighed. "'Afraid you can't, Betsy,' her aunt replied. And at this, with an instinctive glance toward the door, where her mother would soon come in, to stop by her mere presence all such conversation, Elizabeth eagerly threw out one inquiry after the other, pell-mell. "'How on earth do you do it?' she wanted to know. "'How do you get a speech ready, Aunt Deborah? How much of it do you write out ahead? Aren't you just the least bit nervous?' Now, I mean, this minute? And how will you feel on the platform? What on earth do you do with your feet? As the girl bent forward there with her gaze fixed ardently on her aunt, her grandfather thought in half-comic dismay, Lord, now she'll want to be a great speaker, like her aunt, and she will tell her mother so. What's the meeting all about? he inquired, and Deborah began to explain. In her five schools the poverty was rapidly becoming worse. Each week more children stayed away, or came to school ragged and unkempt, some without any overcoats, small pitiful mites wearing shoes so old as barely to stick on their feet, and when the teachers and visitors followed these children into their homes they found bare, dirty, chilly rooms, where the little folk shivered and wailed for food, and the mothers looked distracted, gaunt, and sullen, and half-crazed. Over three hundred thousand workers were idle in the city. Meanwhile, to make matters worse, half the money from uptown, which had gone in former years into work for the tenements, was going over to Belgium instead, and the same relentless drain of war was felt by the tenement people themselves for all of them were foreigners, and from their relatives abroad, in those wide zones of Europe already blackened and laid waste, 
in endless torrents through the mails came wild appeals for money in such homes her children lived and deborah had set her mind on vigorous measures of relief landlords must be made to wait and the city be persuaded to give work to the most needy food and fuel must be secured as she spoke of the task before her with a flush of animation upon her bright expressive face at the thought that in less than an hour she would be facing thousands of people the gloom of the picture she painted was dispelled in the spirit she showed these things always work out she declared with an impatient shrug of her shoulders and watching her admiringly young betsy thought how strong she is what a wonderful grown-up woman and roger watching thought how young what things it was edith's voice at the door and among those at the table there was a little stir of alarm she had entered unnoticed and now took her seat she was looking pale and tired what things work out so finely she asked and with a glance at deborah's gown where are you going she added to a meeting deborah answered oh and edith began her soup in the awkward pause that followed twice deborah started to speak to her sister but checked herself for at other dinners just like this she had made such dismal failures by the way edith she said at last i've been thinking of all that furniture of yours which is lying in storage her sister looked up at her startled what about it she asked there's so much of it you don't care for deborah answered quietly why don't you let a part of it go i mean the few pieces you've always disliked for what purpose why it seems such a pity not to have hannah back in the house she would make things so much easier roger felt a glow of relief a capital plan he declared at once it would be edith corrected him if i hadn't already made other plans and then in a brisk breathless tone you see i've made up my mind she said to sell not only part but all my furniture very soon and a few other belongings as well and use the money to put george and elizabeth and little bob back in the schools where they belong mother gasped elizabeth and with a prolonged oh of delight she ran around to her mother's chair but look here george blurted worriedly i don't like it mother darned if i do you're selling everything just for school school is rather important george was edith's tart rejoinder if you don't think so ask your aunt what do you think of it auntie he asked the cloud which had come on deborah's face was lifted in an instant i think george she answered gently that you'd better let your mother do what she thinks best for you it will make things easier here in the house she added to her sister but i wish you could have hannah too oh i'll manage nicely now said edith and with a slight smile of triumph she resumed her dinner the war won't last forever muttered roger uneasily and to himself but suppose it should last a year or more he did not approve of edith's scheme it's burning her bridges all at once for something that isn't essential he thought but he would not tell her so meanwhile deborah glanced at the clock 
Oh, it's nearly eight o'clock. I must hurry or I'll be late, she said. Good night, all. And she left them. Roger followed her into the hall. What do you think of this, he demanded. Her reply was a tolerant shrug. It's her own money, father. All her money, he rejoined. Every dollar she has in the world. But I don't just see how it can be helped. Can't you talk to her, show her what folly it is? Hardly, said Deborah, smiling. Already she had on her coat and hat and was turning to go, and her father scowled with annoyance. She was always going, he told himself, leaving him to handle her sister alone. He would like to go out himself in the evenings. Yes, by George, this very night. It would act like a tonic on his mind. Just for a moment, standing there, he saw Cooper Union packed to the doors. He heard the ringing speeches, the cheers. But no, it was not to be thought of. With this silent war going on in his house, he knew he must stay neutral. Watchful waiting was his course. If he went out with Deborah, Edith would be distinctly hurt, and sitting all evening here alone she would draw still deeper into herself. And so it would be night after night, as it had been for many weeks. He would be cooped up at home while Deborah did the running about. In half the time it takes to tell it, Roger had worked himself into a state where he felt like a mighty badly used man. I wish you would speak to her, he said. I wish you could manage to find time to be here more in the evenings. Edith worries so much, and she's trying so hard. A little sympathy now and then. But she doesn't seem to want any from me, said his daughter, a bit impatiently. I know it's hard, of course it is, but what can I do? She won't let me help. And besides, there are other families, you know, thousands, really suffering, for the lack of all that we have here. She smiled and kissed him quickly. Good night, Dad, dear. I've got to run. And the door closed behind her. Chapter 28 After dinner that night, in the living room, the two older children studied their lessons, and Edith sat mending a pair of rompers for little Tad. Presently Roger came out from his den with the evening paper in his hand and sat down close beside her. He did this conscientiously almost every evening. With a sigh he opened his paper to read. Again there was silence in the room, and in this silence Roger's mind roamed far away across the sea. For the front page of his paper was filled with the usual headlines, tidings which a year before would have made a man's heart jump into his throat, but which were getting commonplace now. Dead and wounded by the thousands, famine, bombs and shrapnel, hideous atrocities, submarines and floating mines, words once remote but now familiar, always there on the front page, and penetrating into his soul, becoming a part of Roger Gale, so that never again, when the war was done, would he be the same man he was before for he had forever lost his faith in the sanity and steadiness of the great mind of humanity. Roger had thought of mankind as mature, but there had come to him of late the same feeling he had had before in the bosom of his family. Mankind had suddenly unmasked and shown itself for what it was, still only a precocious child with a terrible precocity. For its growth had been one-sided, its strength was growing at a speed breathless and astounding, 
but its vision and its poise, its sense of human justice, of kindliness and tolerance, and of generous brotherly love, these had been neglected and were being left behind. Vaguely he thought of its ships of steel, its railroads, and its flaming mills, its miracles, its prodigies, and the picture rose in his mind of a child, standing there of giant's size, with dangerous playthings in its hands, and boastfully declaring, I can thunder over the earth, dive into the ocean, soar on the clouds, I can shiver to atoms a mountain, I can drench whole lands with blood, I can look up and laugh at God. And Roger frowned as he read the news. What strange new century lay ahead! What convulsing throes of change! What was in store for his children? Tighter set his heavy jaw. It shall be good, he told himself with a grim determination. For them there shall be better things. Something great and splendid shall come out of it at last. They will look back upon this time as I look on the French Revolution. He tried to peer into that world ahead, dazzling, distant as the sun. But then with a sigh he returned to the news, and little by little his mind again was gripped and held by the most compelling of all appeals so far revealed in humanity's growth, the appeal of war to the mind of a man. He frowned as he read, but he read on. Why didn't England send over more men? The clock struck nine. Now George, now Elizabeth, Edith said. With the usual delay and reluctance, the children brought their work to an end, kissed their mother, and went up to bed, and Edith continued sewing. Presently she smiled to herself. Little Tad had been so droll that day. On the third page of his paper, Roger's glance was arrested by a full-column story concerning Deborah's meeting that night. And as in a long interview he read here in the public print the same things she had told him at supper, he felt a little glow of pride. Yes, this daughter of his was a wonderful woman, living a big, useful life, taking a leading part in work which would certainly brighten the lives of millions of children still unborn. Again he felt the tonic of it. Here was a glimmer of hope in the world. Here was an antidote to war. He finished the column and glanced up. Edith was still sewing. He thought of her plan to sell all she possessed in order to put her children back in their expensive schools uptown. Why can't she save her money, he thought. God knows there's little enough of it left, but I can't tell her that. If I do, she'll sell everything, hand me the cash, and tell me she's sorry to be such a burden. She'll sit like a thundercloud in my house. No, he could say nothing to stop her, and over the top of his paper her father shot a look at her of keen exasperation. Why risk everything she had to get these needless frills and fads? Why must she cram her life so full of petty plans and worries and titty-tatty little jobs? For the Lord's sake, leave their clothes alone. And why these careful little rules for every minute of their day, for their washing, their dressing, their eating, their napping, their play, and the very air they breathed? He crumpled his paper impatiently. 
she was always talking of being old-fashioned well then why not be that way let her live as her grandmother had up there in the mountain farmhouse she had not been so particular with one hired girl she thought herself lucky and not only had she cooked and sewed but she had spun and woven too had churned and made cheese and pickles and jam and quilts and even mattresses once in two months she had cut roger's hair and the rest of the time she had let him alone except for something really worth while a broken arm for example or church she had stuck to the essentials but edith was not old-fashioned nor was she alive to this modern age in short she was neither here nor there then from the nursery above her smallest boy was heard to cry with a little sigh of weariness quickly she rose and went upstairs and a few moments later to roger's ears came a low sweet soothing lullaby years ago edith had asked him to teach her some of his mother's cradle songs and the one which she was singing to-night was a song he had heard when he was small when the mountain storms had shrieked and beat upon the rattling old house and he had been frightened and had cried out and his mother had come to his bed in the dark he felt as though she were near him now and as he listened to the song from the deep well of sentiment which was part of roger gale rose memories that changed his mood and with it his sense of proportions here was motherhood of the genuine kind not orating in cooper union in the name of every child in new york but crooning low and tenderly soothing one little child to sleep one of the five she herself had borne in agony without complaint how edith had slaved and sacrificed how bravely she had rallied after the death of her husband he remembered her a few hours ago on the bed upstairs spent and in anguish sobbing alone and remorse came over him deborah's talk at dinner had twisted his thinking he told himself well that was deborah's way of life she had her enormous family and edith had her small one and in this hell of misery which war was spreading over the earth each mother was up in arms for her brood and by george of the two he didn't know but that he preferred his own flesh and blood all very noble miss deborah and very dramatic to open your arms to all the children under the moon and get your name in the papers but there was something pretty fine in just sitting at home and singing to one all right little mother you go straight ahead this is war and panic and hard times you're perfectly right to look after your own he would show edith he did not begrudge her this use of her small property and more than that he would do what he could to take her out of her loneliness how about reading aloud to her he had been a capital reader during judith's lifetime for he had always enjoyed it so roger rose and went to his shelves and began to look over the volumes there perhaps a book of travel stoddard's lectures on japan meanwhile edith came into the room sat down and took up her sewing as she did so he turned and glanced at her and she smiled brightly back at him yes he thought with a genial glow from this night on he would do his part 
He came back to his chair with a book in his hand, prepared to start on his new course. Father, she said quietly, her eyes were on the work in her lap. Yes, my child, what is it? It's about John, she answered. And with a movement of alarm, he looked at his daughter intently. What's the matter with John? he inquired. He has tuberculosis, she said. He has no such thing, her father retorted. John has Potts' disease of the spine. Yes, I know he has, she replied, and I'm sorry for him, poor lad. But in the last year, she added, certain complications have come, and now he's tubercular as well. How do you know? He doesn't cough. His lungs are sound as yours or mine. No, it's... Edith pursed her lips. It's different, she said softly. Who told you, he demanded. Not Deborah was the quick response. She knew it, I'm certain, for I find that she's been having Mrs. Neal, the woman who comes in to wash, do John's things in a separate tub. I found her doing it yesterday, and she told me what Deborah had said. It's the first I'd heard of it, Roger put in. I know it is, she answered, for if you'd heard of it before, I don't believe you'd have been as ready as Deborah was, apparently, to risk infecting the children here. Edith's voice was gentle, slow, and relentless. There was still a reflection in her eyes of the tenderness which had been there as she had soothed her child to sleep. As time goes on, John is bound to get worse. The risk will be greater every week. Oh, pshaw, cried her father, no such thing. You're just scaring yourself over nothing at all. Dr. Lake didn't think I was. Lake was the big child specialist in whose care Edith's children had been for years. I talked to him today on the telephone, and he said we should get John out of the house. Roger heartily damned Dr. Lake. It's easy to find a good home for the boy, Edith went on quietly, close by, if you like, in some respectable family that will be only too thankful to take in a boarder. How about the danger to that family's children? Roger asked malignantly. Very well, father, do as you please. Take any risk you want to. I'm taking no risk, he retorted. If there were any risk, they would have told me. Alan and Deborah would, I mean. They wouldn't, burst from Edith with a vehemence which startled him. They'd take the same risk for my children they would for any street urchin in town. All children are the same in their eyes, and if you feel as they do, I don't feel as they do, don't you? Then I'm telling you that Dr. Lake said there was very serious risk. Every day this boy remains in the house. Roger rose angrily from his chair. So you want me to turn him out, tonight? No, I want you to wait a few days, until we can find him a decent home. All right, I won't do it. Very well, father, it's your house, not mine. For a few moments longer she sat at her sewing, while her father walked the floor. Then abruptly she rose, her eyes brimming with tears, and left the room, and he heard a sob as she went upstairs. Now she'll shut herself up with her children, he reflected savagely, and hold the fort till I come to terms. Rather than risk a hair on their heads, Edith would turn the whole world out of doors. He thought of Deborah, and he groaned. She would have to be told of this, and when she was, what a row 
there would be, for Johnny was one of her family. He glanced at the clock. She'd be coming home soon. Should he tell her? Not tonight. Just for one evening he'd had enough. He picked up the book he had meant to read, Stoddard's Lectures on Japan. And Roger snorted wrathfully, By George, how he'd like to go to Japan, or to darkest Africa. Anywhere. Chapter 29 But later in the evening, when Alan and Deborah came in, Roger, who in the meantime had had a good hour in Japan, and was somewhat relaxed and soothed, decided at once this was the time to tell her and have done with it. For Deborah was flushed with triumph. The meeting had been a huge success. Cooper Union had been packed to the walls, with an overflow meeting out in the street. Thousands of dollars had been pledged, and some big politicians had promised support, and men and women, rich and poor, had volunteered their services. She started to tell him about it, but noticed his troubled expression, and asked him what was on his mind. "'Oh, nothing tremendous,' Roger said. "'I hate to be any damper tonight. I hadn't meant to tell you tonight, but I think I will now, for you look as though you could find a solution for anything.' "'Then I must look like an idiot,' his daughter said good-humouredly. "'What is it?' she demanded. "'It's about John.' Her countenance changed. Oh, is he worse? Edith thinks he is, and she says it's not safe. I see. She wants him out of the house. Tell me what she said to you. As he did so, she listened intently, and turning to Alan at the end, What do you say to this, Alan? she asked. Is there any real risk to the children? A little, he responded. As much as they take every day in the trolley going to school. They never go in the trolley, Deborah answered dryly. They always go on the top of the bus. She was silent for a moment. Well, there's no use discussing it. If Edith feels that way, John must go. The house won't be livable till he does. Roger looked at her in surprise. He felt both relieved and disappointed. John's only one of thousands to her, he told himself aggrievedly. He isn't close to her. She hasn't room. She has a whole mass meeting in her head. But I haven't, by George. I like the boy, and I'm the one who will have to tell him to pack up and leave the house. Isn't it the very devil how things all come back on me? Look here, father, Deborah said. Suppose you let me manage this. And Roger's heavy visage cleared. You mean you'll tell him? Yes, she replied and he'll understand it perfectly. I think he has been expecting it. I have for a good many weeks, she added with some bitterness, and I know some people who will be glad enough to take him in. I'll see that he's made comfortable. Only her face clouded. It has meant a lot to him being here, her father put in gruffly. Oh, John's used to getting knocks in this world. Her quiet voice grew hard and stern. I wasn't thinking of John just now. What frightens me at times like this is Edith, she said slowly. No, not just Edith. Motherhood. I see it in so many mothers these days, in the women downtown, in their fight for their children against all other children on earth. It's the hardest thing we have to do, to try to make them see and feel outside of their own small tenement homes. 
and help each other pull together they can't see it's their only chance and all because of this mother love it's so blind sometimes like an animal she broke off and for a moment she seemed to be looking deep into herself and i suppose we're all like that we women are she muttered when we marry and have children if the pinch is ever hard enough you wouldn't be said alan and a sudden sharp uneasiness came into roger's mind when are you two to be married he asked without stopping to think and at once he regretted his question with a quick impatient look at him alan bent over a book on the table i don't know deborah answered next spring i hope the frown was still on her face don't make it too long said her father brusquely he left them and went up to bed deborah sat motionless she wished alan would go for she guessed what was coming and did not feel equal to it to-night all at once she felt tired and unnerved from her long exciting evening if only she could let go of herself and have a good cry she locked her hands together and looked up at him with impatience he was still at the table his back was turned don't you know i love you she was thinking fiercely can't you see it haven't you seen it growing growing day after day but i don't want you here to-night why can't you see you must leave me alone now this minute he turned and came over in front of her and stood looking steadily down i wonder he said slowly how well you understand yourself i think i do she muttered with a sudden twitching of her lip she looked quickly up at him go on alan let's talk it all over now if you must not if you feel like that he said at his tone of displeasure she caught his hand yes yes i want to please she cried it's better really believe me it is he hesitated a moment his wide generous mouth set hard and then in a tone as sharp as hers he demanded are you sure you'll marry me next spring are you sure you hope you will next spring are you sure this sister of yours in the house on your nerves day and night with this blind narrow motherhood this motherhood which frightens you isn't frightening you too much no a little but not too much her deep sweet voice was trembling you're the one who frightens me if you only knew when you come like this with all you've done for me back of you deborah don't be a fool oh i know you say you've done nothing except what you've been glad to do you love me like that but it's just that love giving up all your practice little by little and your reputation uptown all for the sake of me alan me you're wrong he replied compared to what i'm getting i've given up nothing can't you see you're just as narrow in your school as edith is right here in her home you look upon my hospital as a mere annex to your schools when the truth of it is that the work done down there is a chance i've wanted all my life can't you understand he cried that instead of your being in debt to me it's i who am in debt to you you're the suffragist eh a feminist whatever you want to call it all right so you want to be equal with man then for god's sake why not begin feel equal i'm no annex to you nor you to me it has happened thank god that our work fits in each with the other 
He stopped and stared, seemed to shake himself. He walked the floor, and when he turned back his expression had changed. "'Look here, Deborah,' he asked, with an appealing, humorous smile. "'Will you tell me what I'm driving at?' Deborah threw back her head and laughed, and her laughter thrilled with relief. How sure I am now that I love him, she thought. You've proved I owe you nothing, she cried, and that men and women of our kind can work on splendidly side by side, and never bother our poor little heads about anything else, even marriage. We will, though, he retorted. The next moment she was in his arms. Now, Deborah, listen to reason, child. Why can't you marry me right away? Because, she said, when I marry you, I'm going to have you all to myself, for weeks and weeks, as we planned before. And afterwards, with a wonderful start, and with the war over, work less hard, and the world less dark and gloomy, we're going to find that at last we can live. But this winter it couldn't be like that. This winter we've got to go on with our work, and without any more silly worries or talk about whether or not we're in love, for we are. Her upturned face was close to his, and for some moments nothing was said. Well, she asked, are you satisfied? No, I want to get married. But it is now a quarter past one, and I'm your physician. Go straight to bed. She stopped him a minute at the front door. Are you sure, absolutely, you understand? He told her he did. But as he walked home he reflected how tense she had been in the way she had talked. Yes, the long strain was telling. Why was she so anxious to get me out of the house, he asked, when we were alone for the first time in days? And why, if she's really sure of her love, does she hate the idea that she's in my debt? He walked faster, for the night was cold, and there was a chill, too in this long waiting game. Roger heard Deborah come up to bed, and he wondered what they had been talking about. Of the topic he himself had broached, each other, love and marriage? Possibly, for a minute or two, but no more, he grumbled. For, don't forget, there's work to discuss. There's that mass meeting still on her mind, and God knows a woman's mind is never any child's play. But when you load a mass meeting on top... Here he yawned long and noisily. His head ached. He felt sore and weak from the evening's entertainment my other daughter gave me. No, he was through. He had had enough. They could settle things to suit themselves. Let Edith squander her money on frills, the more expensive the better. Let her turn poor Johnny out of the house. Let her give full play to her motherhood. And if that scared Deborah out of marrying... Let her stay single and die an old maid. He had worried enough for his family. He wanted a little peace in his house. Drowsily he closed his eyes, and a picture came into his mind of the city as he had seen it only a few nights before. It had been so cool, so calm and still. At dusk he had been in the building of the great tower on Madison Square, and when he had finished his business there, on an impulse he had gone up to the top, and through a wide low window had stood a few moments looking down. A soft light snow was falling, and from high up in the storm, through the silent whirling flakes, 
he had looked far down upon lights below in groups and clusters dancing lines between tall phantom buildings blurred and ghostly faint unreal from all that bustle and fever of life there had risen to him barely a sound and the town had seemed small and lonely a little glow in the infinite dark fulfilling its allotted place for its moment in eternity suddenly from close over his head like a brazen voice out of the sky hard and deafening and clear the great bell had boomed the hour then again had come the silence and the cool soft whirling snow like a dream it faded all away and with a curious smile on his face presently roger fell asleep chapter thirty and now he felt the approach at last of another season of quiet one of those uneventful times which come in family histories as he washed and dressed for dinner one night a little later he thought with satisfaction how nicely things are smoothing out his dressing for dinner as a rule consisted in changing his low wing collar and his large round detachable cuffs but to-night he changed his cravat as well from a black to a pearl-gray one he hoped the whole winter would be pearl-gray the little storm which edith had raised over john's presence in the house had been allayed deborah had talked to john and had moved him with his belongings to a comfortable sunny room in the small but neat apartment of a scotch family nearby and john had been so sensible oh i'm fine thank you he had answered simply when in the office roger had asked him about his new home so that incident was closed already edith was disinfecting john's old room to her heart's content for george was to occupy it now she was having the woodwork repainted and a new paper put on the walls she had already purchased a small new rug and a bed and a bureau and one easy chair and was making a pair of fresh pretty curtains all right let her do it if only there could be peace in the house with his cravat adjusted and his thick curling silver hair trim from having just been cut by louis over at brevort roger went comfortably down to his dinner edith greeted him with a smile deborah's dining out she said very well he replied so much the better we'll go right in i'm hungry and we'll have the evening to ourselves no big ideas or problems eh daughter he slipped his hand in hers and she gave it a little affectionate squeeze with john safely out of the way and not only the health of her children but their proper schooling assured edith was herself again placid sweet and kindly and dinner that night was a cheerful meal later in the living-room as roger contentedly lit his cigar edith gave an appreciative sniff you do smoke such good cigars father she said smiling over her needle and glancing up at her daughter betsy dear she added go and get your grandfather's evening paper in quiet perusal of the news he spent the first part of his evening the war did not bother him to-night for there had come a lull in the fighting as though even war could know its place and times were better over here as skipping all news from abroad his eyes roved over the papers for what his business depended upon roger began to find it now 
the old familiar headlines were reappearing side by side high finance exposures graft the antics and didos cut up by the sons and daughters of big millionaires and after them in cheery succession the yale harvard game a new man for the giants a new college building for cornell a new city plan for seattle a woman senator in arizona and in chicago a sporting mayor in brief all over the u s a men and women old and new had risen up to power fame notoriety whatever you chose to call it men and women hardly children was the better word but the thought did not trouble roger tonight he had instead a heartening sense of the youth the wild exuberance the boundless vigor in his native land he could feel it rising once again life was soon to go on as before people were growing hungry to see the names of their countrymen back in the headlines where they belonged and roger's business was picking up he was not sure of the figure of his deficit last week he had always been vague on the bookkeeping side but he knew it was down considerably when betsy and george had gone to bed roger put down his paper look here edith he proposed how'd you like me to read aloud while you sew she looked up with a smile of pleased surprise why father dear i'd love it at once she bent over her needle again so that if there were any awkwardness attending this small change in their lives it did not reveal itself in her pretty countenance what shall we read she affably asked i've got a capital book he replied it's about travel in japan i'd like nothing better edith replied and with a slight glow of pride in himself roger took his book in hand the experiment was a decided success he read again the next night and the next while edith sat at her sewing and so this hour's companionship from nine to ten in the evening became a regular custom just one hour and no more which roger spent with his daughter intimately and pleasantly yes life was certainly smoothing out edith's three older children had been reinstated in school and although at first when deprived of their aid she had found it nearly impossible to keep her two small boys amused and give them besides the four hours a day of fresh air they required she had soon met this trouble by the same simple process as before of her few possessions still unsold she had disposed of nearly all and with a small fund thus secured she had sent for hannah to return the house was running beautifully christmas too was drawing near and though roger knew that in edith's heart was a cold dread of this season she bravely kept it to herself and she set about so determinedly to make a merry holiday that her father admiring her pluck drew closer still to his daughter he entered into her christmas plans and into all the conspiracies which were whispered about the house great secrets anxious consultations found in him a ready listener so passed three blessed quiet weeks and he had high hopes for the winter end of section nine recording by james carson